moving into our second part for the evening, uh, verse 6, where we get to see the bride of Christ. Revelation 19.6 begins, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. So this is one of the major reasons why we divide the passage here. Uh, these first 10 verses that give us the uh, heaven's response to the destruction of Babylon. Uh, because this was also the uh, introduction to verse 1, that first section. So we've got two sections in verses 1 through 10. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven saying. So we've got a great multitude again speaking. He expounds on this description once again, uh, just like he gave three descriptions um, before of the redeemed, uh, that they were uh, bond servants, they feared him, they were small and great. Here we get three more, but these are all similes. It's a uh, something like a voice of a great multitude. It's not identified with that same um, multitude. It is like the sound of many waters. We see that Jesus' voice was also like the sound of many waters. Revelation 1.15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, the idea of judgment, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. We see that the wings, oh, that's Ezekiel 16, I believe it, no, Ezekiel 1, uh, the wings of the cherubim sound like uh, the voice of many waters. Ezekiel 43, when uh, Ezekiel is in the millennial temple, and he hears uh, God speaking. He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone uh, with his glory. But notice also Revelation 14, a group of people that cannot be God um, also sound like the voice of many waters. I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. Oh, I didn't include all this verse. Um, verse 13 shows that these are the 144,000 on Mount Zion who come and they sing uh, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So my point in, in this is that once again, we can't identify who this voice is. That's why John is giving us descriptions so that we have something um, to identify it by. Um, it was like the voice of a great multitude. It was like the sound of many waters. It was like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Revelation 6.1, I saw that when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder come. So we've got uh, basically these heavenly beings or these congregations these are descriptive ways that John has of telling us what he's hearing uh, without being able to identify specifically who it is. But this voice or this thing that he heard that was like a voice um, also says hallelujah in its reason for saying hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Now you might say, Revelation is pretty redundant because this is the third time where he's been declared to already be reigning. 
but if we remember that these were all uh, proleptic aorists, they're all looking forward to that time when Christ would reign. Uh, that's kind of a unique property of the Greek language where its tenses don't encode time on a timeline, but they encode aspect or uh, either the imperfection of the action or the perfection of the action. Uh, whether it's being looked at from inside the action or from outside as a summary of the action. So here in Revelation 11:15, we're looking at that future event like it is a summary uh, of what is occurring during the tribulation. You'll also remember that unique uh, principle of these uh, judgments as they're being unraveled. The seventh seal judgment is all seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment is all seven bowls. So when we come to the end of any of those cycles and they open the very last seal, they're opening all of the coming judgments after that. So it can easily look forward to that period when God is going or when, uh, when Jesus begins to reign in the millennial kingdom. Same thing when the seventh trumpet blows, we see this occurring. In fact, that's what we're looking at here. Um, the seventh trumpet sounds, the seventh trumpet is all seven of the bold judgments, which conclude with Jesus taking the throne. So each time a seventh in the cycle is opened, we get a flash forward um, to the commencement of the kingdom. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then, Revelation eleven sixteen, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who, you, um, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So we have the um, proleptic aorists, the looking forward, um, to the event that is now occurring um, in actual time here in Revelation 19, we see that these events are actually um, occurring at the time John is seeing them. Uh, Revelation 24 then gives us a description um, of that uh, being completed after the judgments uh, take place. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we see that uh, at the time of the resurrection, that is established, the kingdom. We can go all the way back to Daniel and see this um, event um, prophetically. Daniel 7.13, Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Uh, first of all, we can see in here the distinction between the first person and the second person of the Godhead. We've got Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. 
Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to God or to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So that idea of rejoicing and being glad, giving glory, uh, this actually does have uh, its roots in the Old Testament in the idea of the coming of the kingdom uh, when rejoicing and gladness and glory all meets together. Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness and as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Now, this is important because we're also anticipating a marriage ceremony. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, once again, this um, the uh, Greek uh, tense system is not like English, where in English we might say, I go or I went, and we know that I go is uh, present tense. It's happening either habitually or at the moment that I say it. And I say I went, and it means that action's completed. It's in the past already. That's not how the Greek tense system works. Um, here we've got a perfective. The marriage of the lamb has come. That means we're looking at it like a summary. Uh, it is a completed action, which contextually here puts it in the past. Uh, but the idea is simply that it is complete. It is perfective. And his bride has made herself ready. By the time we see her, there's not more making to happen. Um, her judgment has already come. She's already um, been given her rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And she is arrayed in all of this um, glory. Now, we have to understand a bit about how weddings took place back then. Um, it's not altogether different from how we have weddings today, but uh, it was pretty specific. Now we've got uh, for example, the engagement, the um, actual wedding ceremony, and then we've got the honeymoon. Uh, different people come to uh, different events. Um, you have some of your closest friends, perhaps they're at the engagement, they hide behind trees or they hide behind walls, and they uh, get to watch this event that the bride doesn't necessarily know is about to happen. And that's all fun and games. And then the ceremony is when you invite everyone to come and maybe you have a reception afterwards where you have um, only specific people come to or the other way around where you've got only specific people coming to the ceremony and then you've got a um, big reception afterwards where you've got more people. Then you've got a honeymoon and you don't bring anyone on your honeymoon, um, just the husband and the wife. So there was a very specific way uh, in which weddings occurred. Uh, in John's day, which would have been the context for speaking in marriage terms. So the first event to occur would be the promise or the betrothal. Once two are betrothed, which is similar to an engagement, but it is different in the sense that a betrothal is equivalent to a legal union. You would actually need a certificate of divorce to end a betrothal, whereas in an engagement, you just give the ring back and you say, no, I'm not going to marry you. Uh, here, a betrothal uh, is a period where to become legally married, um, the union is already there and it's unbreakable at that time, uh, but it hasn't been consummated or celebrated. 
That is because a period of purification occurs between the betrothal and the actual signing of the covenant. Uh, this uh, we see in the beginning of the gospel accounts. We meet Mary during her period of betrothal, uh, where she's already promised to Joseph, um, and then she becomes pregnant, and that is a big scandal because this is the time of purification. Uh, you wait a year uh, because that, uh, for example, um, if one becomes betrothed to a woman who gets pregnant during that time of betro uh, betrothal, uh, where the wedding is not consummated by the uh, by the bridegroom and the bride, then the bridegroom has every uh, right to end that betrothal uh, because his uh, bride has not kept herself pure. Uh, so this period of purification and waiting uh, was for the protection of the union of the two people. And then there would be a private ceremony. Um, the actual ceremony where the vows are stated, the covenant is made, is not a public event uh, necessarily. It would be um, private for family, perhaps very close friends. Um, this is an intimate ceremony. And we see this with the marriage of the uh, lamb as well, where in Revelation, it's not really, uh, we don't see the ceremony take place. We see the events that occur after the ceremony has taken place. Uh, and that is the party, uh, the feast for invited guests. Um, a good place to uh, see this in scripture is in John chapter 2 uh, with the wedding feast at Cana. The bride and the groom are already married, and then there is a seven-day celebration afterwards. That's what we're looking at here with the marriage feast of the Lamb. The ceremony has taken place already, and we're about to enjoy a 1,000-year um, party or feast uh, for invited guests. It's the kickoff party to eternity. Now, the identity of the bride is somewhat um, controversial. Uh, it, it is difficult to settle it 100%. Um, I do lean um, very solidly on the camp of it is um, the church. However, some will go back and cite, for example, Isaiah 54. Uh, there's also Isaiah 50 mentions it. Uh, it's mentioned in Jeremiah, in Hosea. Uh, this uh, concept of marriage between Israel and Jehovah. Uh, Isaiah 54.4 says, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame, and do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, uh, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Now, why I reject the idea that Israel is the bride of Christ uh, is uh, twofold, really. Here they are described as the bride of 
uh, Jehovah, the bride of Yahweh, uh, the first person of the Godhead. Now, the idea of the uh, second person of the Godhead was not fully developed uh, in the Old Testament, though it is present. Um, and so there could be an argument that what is meant here is really the second person. Uh, but uh, keep in mind that elsewhere, Jesus, the uh, Messiah, is spoken of as the child of Israel, especially in Revelation 12. We see that the son who is Jesus is the child of the woman who is Israel. Um, and a mother does not marry her son. Uh, but in his, uh, in his deity, in his uh, form of God, then uh, there could be an argument for that. Uh, but notice also, this is not speaking of a uh, betrothed um, bride, but of a married wife who has been unfaithful to her husband. Uh, so this marriage took place all the way back with Abraham, actually, where they were found in their poverty, found in their weakness. God took them, raised them, and eventually married them um, so that the communion between God and Israel is much like the communion between a husband and a wife. In the New Testament, we see this union between Christ, who is the, um, who is the son of Israel, the son of man, married to a new body, the church, which includes Gentiles and Jews of this dispensation from Pentecost to the rapture. It is a specific body carved out from humanity. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, my soul will exalt in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. They are speaking of the salvation from God and they are speaking of God and what he has done to them as like a bridegroom uh, covers a bride. God has um, given salvation, uh, which is like a, a robe of righteousness um, to Israel. And Jesus uh, has the same activity here in the New Testament with the church. We see that uh, Jesus is the uh, mode or the means by which God has done that for all eternity. Um, for all who have been redeemed, they've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Uh, but the special union, the special connection of a bride and the bridegroom is an analogy given between God and Israel and Jesus and the church. And uh, the two don't mix very easily. Although that is the one place where there may be um, an argument is that uh, it may not be only the church, uh, but all the redeemed from all um, uh, generations, dispensations uh, that is in view here in Revelation 19. My issue with that is that the ceremony has taken place prior to the resurrection that begins at the kingdom. When we see the final judgments coming down uh, on the earth, uh, the rest of the dead, the righteous dead, have not been resurrected. Um, if I can ask you guys to think back about a year and a half ago when we did a special on the program of resurrection, the first fruits was Jesus Christ. Then uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us how the church is going to be resurrected at the same time as the rapture that occurs before the tribulation period. Uh, so then. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 15, around verse 50, 50 to 52, um, around there. Uh, those speak of that resurrection of the church. Then we've got places such as uh, Daniel 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, or verses 13, the last verse in uh, Daniel 12 there, speaks of the resurrection of the uh, saints of Israel at the beginning of the kingdom after the period of tribulation. So when we come to the end of the period of tribulation, we already have the marriage ceremony having taken place. We have the ceremony having taken place after this body of redeemed has been judged. Um, and so uh, the church is the only group that fits that description perfectly. And indeed, she is um, analogized to a bride all through the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, uh, Paul speaking about his purpose in, the, uh, in preparing the church here, says, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Now in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, we see why Paul has the right to do this, because he was made the administrator of this dispensation, just like Moses was the administrator of the dispensation of law, uh, where he knit uh, Israel together at, with God as a kingdom, as a nation. Paul acted in a similar function here um, as the uh, administrator of this um, stewardship from God for the church. So he um, was jealous for this church to be betrothed to one husband, which is Christ, so that he might present him to Christ as a pure virgin, uh, fulfilling his duty. Um, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray with the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So keeping Israel pure during this period of betrothal um, is Paul's task. And he does that by admonishing the church when she needs correction. Uh, notice who this statement is written to. It's written to the Corinthian church. Uh, which is kind of like the San Francisco of America. Uh, you don't get much more sexual, drug, uh, all kinds of deviant corruptions anywhere else um, in the Grecian world than Corinth. Uh, it was the hub of prostitution, uh, the hub of uh, uh, all sorts of uh, idolatry, and they really struggled with that sort of idolatry. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 through 4 deals with uh, people looking for a person to elevate, kind of like at the end of this section where John's going to kneel down and try to worship an angel. Uh, the people in Corinth are trying to worship Paul. They're trying to worship uh, all these different men, uh, factions occurring within the church. Paul comes to correct that. In uh, Ephesians or in 1 Corinthians 5, we get um, a case of incest between a, uh, a young man and his mother-in-law. Uh, Paul has to come in and correct that. Uh, we've got books like Galatians, where Paul is coming in and telling uh, the Galatian church how they should mature in Christ, which is not by works of the law, but by uh, walking in the Spirit. You can't please Christ by walking in the flesh, but by walking in the new nature energized by the Spirit. 
Um, so Paul's administration here was to keep the church pure um, by handing down the law of Messiah, not the law of Moses, so that she might mature and stay pure um, during this period of betrothal. Ephesians 5.22 uses uh, what Paul had previously taught the church of Corinth uh, about our betrothal to, um, to Christ to teach them something practical about how husbands and wives ought to treat each other uh, in the body of Christ. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, uh, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Uh, why is he presenting the church to himself in all of her glory in the same function as a, um, as a wife is presented to a husband because he is the um, betrothed husband of the church? having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might, uh, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. We could also draw uh, from instances in scripture where we see that um, a, uh, a husband and a wife become one flesh. We are the body of Christ. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. A mystery is something that was not revealed beforehand in Scripture, but is being revealed at the time uh, it is being described here. So this mystery that is now being explained is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This analogy breaks down if it is not the church and Christ, if the church is not the bride of Christ. Uh, this analogy in Ephesians 5 uh, does not make sense. Anyways, I will digress with that and move on to this idea of sanctification of the church, this period of betrothal, uh, because we've got a tricky statement here. It's actually not that tricky, but um, if you don't read verse eight also, it becomes a little tricky. Uh, his bride has made herself ready. Uh, now, the issue here, everyone knows, um, at least I would hope, uh, unless you're uh, an Armenian, which uh, I guess is always a possibility that, anyways, we know that we are not justified by our works. We are saved through faith, uh, by the grace of God, uh, by means of his blood. But there is a, uh, there is this idea that people spread throughout the church that we might be saved by faith and then sanctified or purified by our works. This is false doctrine, but it's false doctrine that occurs quite frequently in the church, more frequently than justification by faith. Uh, people believe that you can be sanctified by your works. Um, 
the book of Galatians deals a lot with this. Uh, when he talks about how they were saved by faith, he says, uh, you began well, who has deceived you? Um, you were running, let's see, you were running well, who has deceived you? You've been tricked into thinking that you can be sanctified by a different means than you were justified. So the issue here is, has the bride made herself ready by sanctifying herself by her own works? And the answer is yes and no. No, not by her own power, um, but yes, by the activity that she has done while resting in Christ and him working through her. Uh, this is a sanctification of yielding to Christ's work, not a sanctification of working in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 7 deals with this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. When we keep our focus fixed on Jesus, when we keep our, uh, our works focused on his will, when we are yielded to him working through us rather than choosing by our flesh how we are going to serve him, letting him use us for his will, uh, these are how the bride is adorned, uh, or this is how the bride uh, works together with the will of God to have herself made ready. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes this more clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that any one may boast. For we are his workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. These good works are not things that we are doing. They are things that God has prepared uh, that we are following in him. Revelation 19.8 um, helps to give the other side of the coin. So in one side, there is the volitional will of the church. Are we going to be obedient to the things of God? The only way that we have to be obedient is to trust in his spirit. Uh, not to do things in our flesh. Uh, we might have the command, uh, don't steal. Now, if that is our focus, if we're okay, well, we're not going to steal or we're not going to lie. Uh, I guess a really classical one that people deal with today, uh, you say, okay, I am not going to watch that bad thing on the internet. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. We find that uh, those are exacerbated in our lives. When we are trying to keep rules and regulations by our flesh, we will fail every time. But if we keep our eyes focused on Christ in our position in him, what is already true of us because of the blood of Christ that has washed us clean, and if we are focused on his will, uh, then uh, as we yield to the spirit, as we um, obey by saying, okay, rather than obey by saying, I will do, uh, then things, or then uh, the Spirit works through us, energizing our new nature in Christ, rather than our flesh energizing the sin nature. Uh, we are able to serve Him obediently, 
and that works together for our rewards. So, uh, for example, you could uh, look at um, Isaiah's statement, I think in Isaiah 61, where he says, even the righteous deeds of the saints are filthy rags before the Lord. And we could say, how is that possible? Because if you are a Christian and you are not yielding to the will of God, but doing good deeds in the flesh, these are actually bad deeds because anything done apart from God is sinful. Anything done in the flesh is not going to be good works of um, gold, silver, and precious stones. It's going to be works of hay, wood, and stubble. They get burned up. It's not worth a thing if it's not made by Christ through us. So here we see the other side of the coin. It was given to her to clothe herself. She did not create these garments, um, but she put them on as they were made for her. John 15, 4 through 5, which uh, Kelly actually referenced in his prayer. Uh, I'm assuming he knew that he referenced John 14 or John 15. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. If you think of this analogy as Jesus is using it in the upper room discourse, uh, you've got a uh, trunk with the branches, and then you've got fruit growing on those branches. If you cut the branch off of the tree, that branch is not going to produce any fruit. But as it rests in the tree, fruit will be produced through it uh, because the trunk is putting the nutrients into those branches so that fruit can be produced through them. You detach it from the tree, it's not going to produce any fruit. Branch can't really boast about producing the fruit, but it can be used by the tree to bear that fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And now those uh, fruits that are produced through us as we yield to the spirit working in our new nature, uh, those will be judged. Uh, there's four different judgments that we can look forward to. One is the judgment uh, of the redeemed. One is the judgment of the uh, unredeemed, the non-redeemed. And then we've got some physical judgments to look forward to in the future at the end of this tribulation period as well. Uh, which is, for example, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and also the judgment of the shepherd and the rod, uh, which we'll look at in a bit. But here is a unique judgment for the church. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his good deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is a judgment apart from any sense of salvation. This has nothing to do with one's salvation. You only get to this judgment if you've been saved by the blood of Christ. This judgment is for the purpose of assessing reward for the saved believer, whether in this life they have yielded to the Spirit's work or if they have tried to do work uh, by their flesh and refused uh, the means that God has given us to keep his commandments. Uh, I was preaching on this this last Sunday, so it's all fresh in my mind, which is kind of why I'm going on a lot of rabbit trails here. Uh, but if you think about the difference between the law of Moses and the law of Messiah, the law of Moses was handed down with no means of keeping it. They were given a law. It was called later a ministry of condemnation. 
because it gave them the standard, but it did not give them the power to do it. So when Jesus came along and he was able to keep the law, and we see that he was able to keep the law as he did the will of God, um, and he did it by the power of the Spirit, um, this was something outstanding. Even those people who thought that they were law keepers in the Gospels, we see that they were not law keepers. The purpose of the law was never to justify or even to sanctify in the sense of uh, making one have good works um, in Israel. It was for the purpose of giving them a standard so that they could recognize the purity of the Messiah, so they could recognize their need for a savior. It was not something that they were given the power to keep that would have defeated the purpose. But in the church, we are not only given uh, sometimes even more uh, expanded commandments, such as Israel was told to love, um, love their neighbor as themselves, but in the church, we're told to love, um, love one another as Christ loved us, even sacrificing his life. It's a self-sacrificial love. The only way that we have any power to do the things that he has commanded is because the Spirit indwells us, and we have been given a new nature. Israel did not have that new nature. They had only the sin nature and only the flesh, and they had a law code that they could not keep. Now we have commandments in Christ, but we also have a new nature from our new birth in Christ, eternal life that's already living in us, and we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit to energize that new nature so that he can work through us. All right, I digress. I move into Revelation 19, 8, part B. She is clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. Just a few verses next week, uh, we're going to see them arrive on the scene, the church, uh, wearing these garments. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, speaking of Jesus. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So we're going to see these robes come into, uh, into the scene next week. But we're also given a description of these uh, fine linens. They are the fine, or the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So these are the works that we do that have been prepared for us that are not done by our flesh, but done by the Spirit. These are rewards that uh, we will be adorned with, um, such as our crowns that we will cast before the Lord in heaven after they have been awarded to us. Revelation 2.10, speaking to the church of Smyrna, uh, promises such a crown for faithfulness. Uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. This crown of life is not the gift of salvation. Uh, the church at Smyrna is already saved, and that's how they have any power to serve the Lord. This crown of life is sometimes called the martyr's crown. Those who give their physical life uh, for the glory of God. Revelation 3, 4, uh, 3, 4 through 5, speaking to the church of Sardis, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
Now notice here, especially these are positive statements. The negative corollary cannot be inferred. That means we don't want to make this a negative statement also and say those whose garments are soiled will not walk uh, with Christ. But he is making a positive statement that those who have had the spirit working through them, who have not uh, fallen into the idolatry that the rest of the church of Sardis has fallen into, that their white robes are going to be part of the glory that they walk in when they walk with him uh, in the millennial kingdom, when they rule with him, their rewards will be apparent in their garments. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, we don't want to assume the negative corollary. Uh, just because they are unsuccessful Christians, just because they are Christians who trust more in the flesh than in the spirit and uh, do not succeed in maturing in their spiritual life does not mean that this is not true of them, but it means that for those who are, they can have that assurance uh, that they are growing in intimacy with Christ and will be rewarded for that uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 3.18, speaking to the church of Laodicea, a church that trusts a lot more in their flesh than in the spirit. Jesus advises them, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. This is a saved church that needs to change their mind about their activity. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Speaking of communion, uh, not salvation. It is deeper, more intimate fellowship. And the uh, rewards for that deeper and more intimate fellowship uh, by which Christ is able to work through us by means of the Spirit, uh, that is rewarded. And these white garments are part of that reward. Uh, Revelation 4.4, 4, we see already that by the time we meet the church in heaven, those 24 elders, they have already sat at the judgment seat of Christ. They have already been awarded uh, the, this wedding garb um, before the tribulation began. Uh, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Remember, Revelation 4 is after Revelation 2 and 3. Um, it would be nonsense to make these crowns and garments that were spoken about in Revelation 2-3 for the church. Um, be anything but what was just referenced in those preceding two chapters. So before the tribulation even begins, the bride is already dressed in her white garments uh, and pre either prepared or already um, having gone through with the ceremony that is the marriage of the lamb and the bride. Because here we don't have the marriage the ceremony, we have the marriage supper, the party that guests are invited to. The angel said to John, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. 
So stage three of the marriage ceremony has already taken place by the time we're introduced to the bride of Christ in Revelation uh, 7. And here, what is in view is who gets to come to the party, who gets to come to the after ceremony party, um, kick off to eternity, who gets to be there. In John chapter 3, uh, uh, John, speaking about Jesus, says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. John speaks about himself in the sense of a friend of the bridegroom. Now, John is going to die before the church begins in Acts 2. He will not become part of the church like many people in Israel would. Um, you can think of the uh, 12 disciples. Actually, uh, you could think of 11 of the disciples and the one that replaces Judas. Uh, they would become part of the church. In fact, they would become church fathers. Uh, but John would not be one of those. Uh, John the Baptist, that is. Uh, he is a friend of the bridegroom. So we know, at least uh, from this, and we're going to see Matthew 22 in a second, that those before the cross, those before the church, uh, are friends of the bridegroom, but they are not the bride of the bridegroom. Matthew 22, uh, starting in verse 2, is an extended parable that Jesus gives to the Pharisees and Sadducees in the week before he, is, uh, before he goes to the cross. And he's talking about judgment that is going to come on Israel uh, because of their rejection of the Messiah. Now, there is an immediate judgment that's going to take place in AD 70 for that current generation, but the results of that, gener of that rejection of Christ are going to go all the way until Israel receives her king at the end of the tribulation period. So all of that factors into the fact that Israel rejected Jesus at his first coming. And so he's looking forward here in Matthew 22 uh, by means of a parable uh, to the wedding feast. Now, those who die um, before the, uh, yeah, uh, these wouldn't, okay, we'll read the parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. He announced the kingdom. He announced the king. They rejected it. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who had been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock um, are all uh, butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the slaves and ministered, uh, mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Uh, now, so up until now, we've got the rejection of uh, Jesus Christ. They killed his servants that came announcing the kingdom. Uh, 
they were judged, their city was burned. Uh, that occurred in AD 70. But now we're looking forward uh, to the second offer of the kingdom. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. They did not have faith. In other words, go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So now we are looking at the second offer of the kingdom that occurs during the tribulation period, where all in that period were called to this wedding feast, and that is all who had survived the tribulation period. Uh, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. How does one get to this wedding ceremony without having wedding clothes? Simple, he just must be a Jew who survives the tribulation period, but never put his faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The idea here is that not all Israel will be saved Israel, only those who have put their faith in the Messiah. So when they try to enter into the kingdom, when the Messiah comes, their requirement will be worthiness. And worthiness is not their own actions not their own deeds, but whether or not they had faith in the salvation of Messiah. Ezekiel 20 talks about this judgment in a non-parabolic form, uh, what is encapsulated in a parable in Matthew 22 is described in Ezekiel 20, and they should have been aware of this coming judgment, and they should be shaking in their boots that Jesus has put them in that uh, context as being guilty of that uh, rejection. Ezekiel 20.33 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, speaking of the regathering of Israel at the end of the tribulation, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with uh, wrath poured out, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I enter into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, uh, speaking of the wilderness generation in numbers who did not get to enter into the land because of their disobedience, uh, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgressed against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Those who did not receive the Messiah but remained alive physically at the end of the tribulation will not get to enter into the tribulation unless they have put their faith in the Messiah. Zechariah 13 also speaks of this judgment. It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, 
and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Only those who have put their faith in the salvation of Messiah will be saved and be able to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, these are also discussed in two more parables that we are not going to go over in this video. Um, but if you go to my church website uh, or the church YouTube, Tacoma Grace Bible Church, and look at Life of Messiah uh, number 20, uh, that whole video is about these coming judgments. Um, and we go into more detail about the 10 virgins, uh, which is not the church. It is Israel at the end of the tribulation expecting the coming of the king so that they can be guests at this wedding supper uh, who don't get to come in because they did not receive the message of the two prophets in Israel. And then there is the uh, parable of the talents uh, where the leaders of Israel who did not receive the Messiah, who did not lead uh, Israel uh, to the Messiah also get cut off and do not get to enter into the kingdom or take part in the festivities of the kingdom. But what is this marriage supper? Um, it is actually, uh, it was anticipated by Israel uh, for all of time. They didn't really understand um, who the bride would be. Sometimes they would put themselves into the position of being that bride um, in their uh, Talmud commentaries. There is, uh, a, of course, the Orthodox Jews still believe that they are the bride of the Messiah, the bride of God, but we see that the church is the bride of Messiah. Uh, but they've always expected the millennial kingdom to kick off with a um, wedding-style feast. Isaiah 25, 6 says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine, and on the mountain, he will swallow up the covering, uh, which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations. The idea of bringing all the world together into this kingdom, uh, what they are celebrating is actually the marriage feast um, for the lamb, for the Messiah. Uh, the Jews had so many or so much anticipation of this that they even uh, thought they knew what the menu would be. Uh, they believed that the main dish would be Leviathan, uh, that it would be a, uh, a fish dinner uh, that we would receive at the beginning of the kingdom. Now, I don't know if there's any veracity to that, but it's interesting to see uh, that they uh, already have their menu picked out. Uh, but they did not understand the mystery of the church. It had not been revealed, uh, just like uh, John told, or not John, Paul told us there in Ephesians three and in Ephesians five, that this was a mystery. We see in the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, uh, before the revelation of the church, or at least until the development of the church, if you take uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 as the first revelation of the church, uh, which is possible, but uh, also has some doubts. Um, Matthew uh, 25, before the church has been revealed, we see these 10 virgins all awaiting for the um, waiting for the bridegroom, but no mention of the bride. And that's because at that point, it had not been revealed who the bride would be. 
that bride was a new body of believers, the church, which is Jews and Gentiles knit together in one body. Uh, that's uh, Ephesians 2 and 3. Uh, Matthew 26, 29, we see that uh, Jesus is also anticipating this marriage, and he is uh, uh, even abstaining from the fruit of the vine until that marriage ceremony takes place and the feast begins. Matthew 26, 29 says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Revelation 19, 9 uh, ends with this guarantee from the angel. He said to me, these are true words of God. This is revelation passed down from the source, which is God. Um, the revealer of that of the word of God is Jesus. He is the word of God. He reveals it to angels uh, sometimes who are the emissaries of this word. They bring it to people and those apostles. Uh, like we've got here, John writes it down so he can send it to the seven churches, for example. And it's recorded and preserved so that we today can read it also. Uh, I think this actually was uh, part of our very first lesson on Revelation was the transmission of the book uh, coming from God through Jesus, through an angel, through John to the seven churches to us. Uh, the same thing is true here. These are the true words of God here being revealed uh, to John by an angel. John didn't quite get the message, though, uh, in verse 10. John falls at his feet and worships the angel. But this angel says to John, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I don't think that John mistook who this angel was. Um, I also don't think that he thought angel worship was okay. Um, I'm sure by this time, 95 AD, he had read the book of Colossians. I think it's Colossians 1 or Colossians 2, uh, where Peter or where Paul very explicitly says that uh, you cannot worship angels. I don't think John was mistaken in who this creature was. He knew it was an angel. I don't think he thought angel worship was okay. I think he got lost in the moment. And this has happened before as well, Acts 10.25. Uh, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. Cornelius did not think Peter was an angel. Uh, he did not think he was a god. In fact, um, he fell down and worshipped Peter um, out of his excitement that Peter was there to bring him the word of God. Um, but it needs to be ascribed to the right person, even with the right intention intention, worshiping an object that is not um, worthy of worship um, is not appropriate. And so this angel rightly tells John, don't do that. And this is why I think that uh, John uh, wasn't trying to worship angels necessarily, and also didn't think this angel was God is because he makes the same mistake again. Um, he just gets a little excited. And we see that even John um, makes mistakes. So here, Revelation 22, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel 
who showed me these things. He knows it was an angel. He knows he fell down to worship. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren and the prophets and of those who heed the words this book. Worship God. Only God is worthy of receiving worship. And this whole book of Revelation interspersed between judgments, it is a book of worship. It is a book of ascribing the proper glory to God for all that he has done throughout all of history and redeeming uh, people in uh, staying true to his promises to Israel, in bringing that nation um, to repentance, to bringing them uh, through the tribulation and to saving them. We see that all of heaven and earth is erupting into worship of God, and John gets caught up in all the worship and ascribes the worship to the wrong creature. And it's simply a good reminder for us that as we look at these future events and as we worship God, to remember that what we are worshiping is God. He is the creator of the universe. Um, he is the savior of the universe. He is the king. And we ought rightly to ascribe all worship to him and to nothing else. Revelation 10, 19, 19.10 ends with a statement, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And as uh, fancy as that sounds, it's very simple. All prophecy points to Jesus. The purpose of revealing prophecy is not uh, to satiate our curiosity, but it is to describe to us the person of Jesus. Prophecy was given in the Old Testament to lead to the first coming of Jesus of the first coming of the Messiah, and prophecy is given to us now so that we can be prepared as the body of Christ, walking in the Spirit, uh, to be adorned as his bride when he arrives, to have depended on him, to have uh, walked by means of the Spirit so that we do not satisfy the lusts of the flesh. That is what we read through this, and for those who go through the tribulation period who will have this book of Revelation, it is given to them so that they can expect and anticipate Jesus, the Messiah, to come and save them from their peril. And just as First uh, John 3, 3 told us that as we keep our hope uh, focused on this coming of Jesus, coming of the Messiah, then we are also purified. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the reason we have prophecy. Second um, Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart until the second advent. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. We have all three members of the Trinity, uh, functioning together in this, uh, in prophecy, where we've got the Holy Spirit revealing prophecy from God about Jesus. If you remember all the way back to verse 1, chapter 1 of Revelation, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is about him. All right, next week we see him return. The one we first saw opening the seven uh, seals on the scroll, who was worthy to open the scroll. Uh, we now get to see him return to earth and claim the kingdom that is his. Uh, let me end with a word of prayer real quick. Dear Father, we're so thankful uh, for all of your word, um, but especially your prophetic word. Uh, this is 
not a historical record, but this gives us uh, specific details about the future and what we can expect. This is something we can't find produced by human hands, but only as the Holy Spirit guided John in recording this for us. We thank you that you saw fit to tell us about future events so that we had a proper focus uh, rather than focusing on, um, on trying to produce things by our flesh. We keep our focus on you and your soon coming, and we keep our focus on the cross at the same time, what you have completed for us already. Uh, so we thank you so much that uh, what you completed for us already still has future accomplishment looking forward, uh, that we can look forward to the day where uh, you return and we are made just like you. Uh, we praise you and we thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Boy, I sure appreciate um, I definitely picked up on things I did not know, never thought about the oh, Jewish yeah. people being the um friends mm -hmm. or the uh of the of the bride right or the um and uh just even breaking apart the different pieces of the marriage supper compared to the wedding and mm -hmm. that was good well I, good. I tell you i was very thankful for an extra few months to work on this one <laughs> yeah uh, it, it, it can be hard to parse uh hard to weigh all the arguments uh, but I think it's profitable to understand exactly who these groups are. And it makes Absolutely. a lot more sense going through the Gospels as well. Yeah, I feel like I'm always still trying to um, re renew my mind, even from the thinkings I had as a Mormon, and uh -huh. how to witness to them, right. because, and yet, let alone the things that I just didn't, you know, I haven't learned anyway. <laughs> That's good. Good. Well, I'm glad that's, that's the goal of Bible study is that we can be divided and grow in his word. Um, I, mm -hmm. I'm teaching through 1 John um, on Sunday mornings. And that was uh, definitely a major theme in the second chapter of 1 John, uh, that in order to grow intimate and mature in our faith, um, we need to keep his commandments. And that's done by resting in his spirit. Um, but how do we know what his commandments are unless we're reading his word? Uh, and then interestingly enough, John moves from keep his commandments, those who don't keep his commandments, to keep his word, uh, which goes beyond just those imperatival commands that are given to understanding his will and seeking the will of God. Um, so that's that's our, and that, of course, then he hits his, uh, his uh, slight climax with an in that the love of God is perfected in us when not just we are saved and uh, make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth because he's <laughs> saved us, but when we grow in spiritual maturity and when we enjoy that relationship he's given us, uh, he's put us into. Um, I was thinking of, uh, of uh, my nephew, Ben, who is uh, at that age where he's testing the edge of fellowship uh, with uh, Maddie and Tim, he likes to see where the lines are, and he gets in trouble a lot because of it. So he's probably for uh, this year and maybe next year going to be looking at Maddie and Tim as a little hard nosed, uh, thinking, "Well, they they don't love me, or they're always punishing me for something." And um, he's always upset. Um, but when he comes to a more mature relationship with his parents, where he's actually walking in obedience 
to not just the specific imperatives that they give him, but understanding their will and their desire for him in his life. That's going to grow the maturity in him where he understands their love more deeply, where he understands why he was punished for certain things to protect him. And when he starts obeying them out of love and not out of duty. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I'm uh, in my spiritual walk thinking of myself like Ben. How many times am I kicking and screaming being sent to my room? um, Because I had something that I expected would be pleasing to God, but that wasn't because I was actually doing it to please my flesh uh, rather than just listening to God in his will. Uh, Mm -hmm. It happens to all of us. We're all the three-year-olds testing the fellowship of God. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.